Have you ever wanted something to go away? Maybe you were 14 years old and you woke up on picture day and went and looked in the mirror and there was something on your face that morning in the mirror that wasn't on there the night before when you went to bed. And you looked in the mirror and you just wanted in the words of the Muppet philosopher Elmo just to say, go away. Or maybe one Saturday you decided to take your hand at a home perm kit. And when your family came back from running errands that day, they came walking in and they were trying to figure out why you were locked in your bedroom. And you just wanted to say, go away. I would imagine over the coming months until November, when we have watched the 23rd political ad in 28 seconds on TV, we will probably want to look at the TV and just say, go away. And I imagine all of us have looked up at the sky when it was dark one day and said to the rain, will you please just go away? All of us have had moments, times where we wanted something or maybe someone to just go away. But there is one thing in our lives that we need to go away. It's not a want, it's a need. One thing in our lives that we desperately need to go away. In fact, if you boil it down, there's really only one thing that you need. But just let that sink for a second. There's, there's really only one thing that you need. And it's not an education. And it's not a job. It's not a new car. It's not a boyfriend. It's not a girlfriend. It's not a husband. It's not a wife. It's not a child. It's not a, a better house. It's not a better vacation. It's not a better test result. It's not a better politician. All those things are fine. But the one thing that we need is deeper and more important than all of those things. In fact, the, the one thing that you need is more important, infinitely more important, than even food and water. That sounds kind of like a big deal. So what is this thing that you need? Well, Jesus is going to tell us. Listen to Luke 11, verse 4. Jesus says, and forgive us our sins. Jesus is giving his disciples a pattern for how they should pray, a, a guide for how they should pray. And again, he's giving this pattern to his disciples, his closest friends, his top guys. These are the men that left everything to follow after Jesus. And he tells them that what they're going to need to do is they're going to need to ask God to forgive their sins on a daily basis. Charles Spurgeon said this, I do not think that our Savior ever anticipated a time when his disciples on earth would not need to pray, forgive us our sins. His closest friends, his top guys, the men who left everything, he's telling them, you guys are going to have to do this every day over and over again. You're going to have to ask God to forgive you of your sins. The word forgive here means to depart or to go away. It's not the kind of departing or going away that we might say to a zit as we're looking in the mirror. It's not the kind of departing or going away that we'd say to our family on a bad perm day. 
This type of going away is where we need someone to make something go away and we can't do it on our own. We need a a debt to be sent away. We need a debt to be canceled. We need something that we really owe to go away. And so what is that something? What is that debt? Well, the debt, the something, is the penalty of our sin. So what is sin? Well, sin, basically put, if we look at the whole of the Scripture, is, is falling short. Sin is not making the cut. Sin is failing to qualify. Okay, so, so what's the line? What's, what's the cut? What is, what is the requirement that we're failing to meet? Well, this is how Jesus put it. Matthew 5, verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, well, <laughs> okay, yeah, no big deal. I thought when you said there was going to be a line, there was going to be some kind of cut or qualification, I thought it was going to be something hard, you know, something difficult. Perfection, no problemo, I've got that covered. Christianity, they just want people to be perfect. That, that sounds like my religion. Sign me up. Hopefully you're hearing my sarcasm. Imagine one of your children or grandchildren maybe taking the family truckster out one Friday night and they rub it up against every pole and every curb and every sign they possibly can, scratch it up every corner, trash the inside from front to back. They roll up at the house. Are you really going to go out and say, (laughs) kids, That's not what would happen at the Welsh house, I can promise you. I don't think any of us would imagine a judge with a convicted terrorist in front of them at the time of sentencing saying, you know what, things happen. No big deal. You are free to go. But somehow, if we're honest... We feel like the God of the universe should be blind and dumb when it comes to justice. We can't imagine that the God of the universe would have the nerve to have a standard that would not let a nice, hardworking, middle-class American into his heaven. And yet, when we look at the Scripture, when we look at the whole of God's book, we find that there is one requirement. There's there's one admission fee on the ticket to eternity, on the ticket to satisfaction. And that admission fee is, is one word, perfection. That is the line. That is the cut. That's the qualification. That's the standard. This is how Paul told the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You were at that time separate from Christ, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. See, dead in sin and separated from Christ is not, well, she's not perfect, but she's a great cook. Dead in sin and separated from Christ is not, well, he's not perfect, but but he can fix anything. Dead in sin and separated from Christ is dead in sin and separated from Christ. 
See, perfect is perfect, and dead is dead, and wrath is wrath, and separated is separated, and no hope is no hope. These pictures are not confusing. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, then you are separated from Him, and you are in the path of God's just and reasonable wrath. And there is no reason for you to expect hope after you breathe your last. There's only one way to describe what it means to be separated from Christ, and that is desperate. Desperate. When we say we need for our sins to be forgiven, we are describing desperation. In the 1700s, William Hammond wrote a hymn. I don't think there's any original music to it, but some music was added sometime in the last 50 years, I think. And this is what Hammond wrote. It goes like this. All unholy and unclean, I am nothing else but sin. On thy mercy I rely. Give me Christ or else I die. That didn't sound like what we normally hear about Jesus, right? You see, the gospel is not designed just to make you happy in your marriage. The gospel is not designed just to to make you happy at your job. The gospel is not designed to give you your best life now. The gospel of Jesus Christ is designed to rescue and save, and redeem, and care for, and comfort, to protect, to encourage, to love your soul. That is why it is good news. It goes deeper than the surface. It goes deeper than our wants. It hits the need of all needs. And when your soul is well, all is well. When your soul is well, all is well. We sing the song, right, that says that. See, when, you're, when your soul is right with God, then, then it's just well with your soul. It's not always well with your facial complexion. It's not always well at work. It's not always well in your marriage. It's, it's not always well in politics. It's not always well in the world. But it is well with your soul. That's that's what the gospel does. You see, the reason that it's well with your soul is because your heart, your life is, is living and breathing the gospel. You are living and breathing the message of Jesus. This is how Jesus gave his message, at least in one place. John 3, verse 36. Jesus says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. Notice the words that Jesus uses here. He says, believe and obey. Belief is not enough. Anybody can believe the story about Jesus. But Jesus is the one who's going to feel life. The one who's going to have a soul that is well because they know that the life that they have is connected to me. That person is going to be the one who believes and obeys. There's going to be a connection between the two. And part of obeying is praying. 
And part of praying, according to Jesus, is asking God to forgive us our sins, to deeply turn to God for forgiveness. In other words, when we pray that, what we're saying is this, God, I I want my falling short to go away. God, I, I want my being cut off to go away. I want my failing to qualify. I want it to go away. 1 John 1 verse 8 says this, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here's the sobering reality. If you are never wrong, you might not be a Christian. If you never say out loud that you are wrong, then you might not be a Christian. If you're the same person, basically, that you were 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, you might not be a Christian. Why? Because the very nature of what it means to follow after Jesus is to listen to this prayer. The very nature of what it means to be a Christian is that somehow on a daily basis you are engaged in saying, God, forgive me of my sin. God, help me see where I'm falling short even right now. God, help me see where I'm I'm failing you even now. Help me to see where right now in this moment I'm looking for what I want first and most instead of what most honors you. See, here's what we do with our sin. We try to ignore it. We kind of try to act like it's not really there. We clear our browsing history. We, we act like our spouse is just overreacting. We act like our sin's not that big a deal. Hey, my, my self-centeredness isn't, isn't causing anybody to die. You know, my, my self-centered attitude and actions, you know, nobody's, nobody's getting knocked off because of my sin. So, hey, no harm, no foul. And we just continue to act like, hey, no big deal. Here's the thing, though. The Bible gives us a different picture of how a true Christian deals with sin. It's in the very next verse, 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we will call sin what it is, God will cleanse us and then he'll give us tons and tons and tons of grace. But see, we we don't like calling sin what it is, do we? We kind of want to keep doing what we're doing until we get caught. Until somebody calls us out or calls us down. Until we get embarrassed somehow. Until our parents or our spouse just, you know, they yell long enough and loud enough that we finally go, okay, you know, I'll, I'll apologize. In other words, we, we seem to act like we confess, but we really don't. We say we're sorry. We seem at least in the moment to act like we're sorry, but we're not really sorry. And how do we know? This is what Paul said to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance. So godly sorrow, godly I'm sorry, leads to repentance. In other words, godly sorrow leads to change. Godly sorrow means that 
you learn more and more year after year what it means to confess sin before you get confronted, to confess sin before you get caught. It means that you learn in your life to develop a hatred for breaking God's heart. And it's not perfect. We're all going to thin. We're all still going to have to be confronted. We're all still going to get caught every now and then. We're all still going to break God's heart every now and then. But, but not in the same way as before we were a Christian, or not in the same way as when we become a Christian. In other words, we would grow. There would be this desire in us to love Jesus more, to follow Jesus more, and to hate sin less. It didn't, doesn't mean that we'd be sinless, but we would hate sin less. This is what Jesus tells his closest friends to pray. Forgive us our sins. He seems to be inviting them in in these four words just to understand what it means to be in relationship with God. So, question. If you're not praying this on some regular basis or something like this, what does it say about your salvation? If these are the closest friends of Jesus, and he says, you guys need to pray this all the time, does that mean somehow we should pray it less? But asking for forgiveness is not really supposed to be a part of who we are and what we do? Let me note quickly, this is not salvation forgiveness Jesus is speaking of here. This is relational forgiveness. In other words, you can't just say, well, God, forgive me of my sins, and everything's good, and I'm going to heaven. That's not the picture here. The picture is an ongoing relationship with God. Relational forgiveness. In other words, there's this time where we go and pursue repentance. There's there's a moment where we say, give me Christ or else I die. Jesus, save me. In fact, if you don't save me, I I have no chance. And so there is an initial repentance of sin. But then there is an ongoing repentance of sin. And the ongoing repentance of sin sounds something like this. Give me Christ or else I die. Did you catch the similarities there? You see, it's, it's the same, but it's, it's different. The reality is there is a, a time, there's a moment, there's a season of life where you are aware of your separation from God and you, and you beg and you plead for God to save you. At least for, if you're a believer, there is that season and you've experienced it. But then there is this ongoing relationship. It's not like, hey, my sins are forgiven and hey, I'm one and done. Hey, Jesus saved me so now I can do whatever I want. That's not the picture. Stephen Cole says this about what it means to ask God to forgive us of our sins. It's not a matter of my eternal standing before God. It's a matter of my present relationship with him. So what is your present relationship with God? It can only kind of be in one of three categories. Either you have no relationship with God. There's there's nothing there. There is no salvation. Or you have a relationship with God, but but maybe in in a weird way it's kind of in neutral in a sense because you're just full of, of unconfessed sin. You, you know what you should be confessing to the Lord. Or perhaps you are sinfully but repentantly 
engaged in a relationship with God. In other words, you're still sinning. You still do the wrong thing, but, but you're hating it more and more every day. You're, you're learning what it means to love and follow Jesus in a deeper way. Some people might say, well, if I'm already saved, why do I have to ask for forgiveness of sins? I mean, I'm, I'm already covered, right? Why, why do I have to keep doing this? Well, maybe the biggest reason is because Jesus commands us to. Jesus commands us to keep asking for forgiveness, to to stay in right relationship with God. But maybe another way that might be a little more helpful to us practically is is just our conscience. Just to, to keep our conscience clean. What does that mean to keep your conscience clean? I want to give maybe a different angle on that this morning, hopefully to to help you in a a real-life way. And before I read what I'm about to read, let me say that what I'm about to read in no way cancels out actual medical diagnosis for physiological issues and complications. In other words, don't think medical doctor in what I'm getting ready to read. Think of your conscience. Think of your emotions. Ray Stedman writes this. Immediately our Lord touches upon the central thing in this area of life, forgiveness. Here is the need for a cleansed conscience, for a sense of peace, of rest with God. Who of us has not experienced something of heart palpitations, flutterings, shortness of breath, skin rashes, throbbing migraine headaches that seem to split the skull? Stammering, stuttering, nervous compulsions, and a whole host of vague, undefined reactions, flimflams, the heebie-jeebies. Morbid depressions, unreasoning fears and insecurity, the lapses, the psychic shock that can be ours. Where do all these grinning demons arise from? Both scripture and modern psychology and its groping after truth agree that underneath these symptoms lurk two frightening monsters, fear and guilt. So again, no medical physiological conversation here, but the conscience, the emotions, the fear, the monsters of fear and guilt. And so if we connect this to what it means to ask God for forgiveness, what's the most powerful way that we might be able to overcome the monsters of fear and guilt? What's one of the most powerful ways that we might be able to have a a clearer and cleaner conscience? What's one of the most powerful ways that we might increase peace in our soul, that it might be more well with our soul than not? Well, Jesus tells us, forgive us our sins. See, those, those words, they matter. They mean something for fear, for guilt, for worry, for anger, for for anything, because those words take us back to one of the most staggering and astounding moments in history. And what is that moment? 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. In the Old Testament, there was constant sacrificing. A priest would have his time in the schedule, and he would have to go and and slaughter animals over and over and over again, trying to atone for sin. 
And it was endless. When his time was up, someone else would come and take his place. And the same thing. And the picture that we have is that these sacrifices keep pointing to this reality. We can't clean ourselves enough. There's way too much sin. We'll never measure up. We'll never make the line. We'll never make the cut. We'll always fail to qualify. But then, then this moment in history came where there was one who was perfect and he came and no more sacrifices, just one sacrifice. And the one sacrifice would cover all. He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross. He took care of the qualifying. He took care of the measuring up. He became the perfection that we needed. He became the one that takes our sin away. You see, I might jump out in front of a car and and push you out of the way and rescue you at the last moment. I might substitute myself like that. But that's not the cross. Jesus didn't at the last time kind of run up and die on the cross for your sin. In fact, this is how he described what it meant to give his life. John chapter 10, verse 18. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. On purpose, with great passion, the Son of God left the pleasures of heaven and He came and became also the Son of Man to rescue you from sin, to bear the penalty of your sin. So, When we pray, Father, forgive us our sins, what we're saying in our words and our attitudes and our actions and our demeanor is that we believe that Jesus Christ's own purpose came to die for our sin and that he is our hope, not just for salvation, but that Jesus is our hope to kill the monsters of fear and guilt every day. You may think, That sounds really good. I like the idea. But how does that matter when I leave this room? What does it matter in my life that I embrace this concept of forgiveness of sins? What does it matter that Jesus has bore my sins? John MacArthur writes this. Every human problem that exists between people, no matter what that relationship may be, every problem comes from sin. Go ahead, fill in your blanks. What relationship are you having a problem with right now? He goes on. Sin has stirred up all chaos at every level in which chaos exists, whether it's in a marriage or whether it's between nations. Sin is the culprit in every broken marriage, every disrupted home, every shattered friendship. Every argument, every battle, every conflict, every war, every pain, every sorrow, and every Are you catching the vibe of Jesus' prayer? Are you catching how much Jesus loves you that he would tell you to pray this way? Are you catching how deeply his affection is for you that he would ask you and tell you and command you to ask God to forgive your sin because he knows how deadly and how awful and how debilitating sin is? 
And if you, if you don't know that yet, then listen again to Peter's words. He himself bore in his body your, your sins. He absorbed the penalty. He paid the price. Do you believe that for you? Forget me, forget being at church, forget religion, forget work, forget school, forget family, forget politics. Just forget everything for just a moment. And just try to answer that question for yourself. Do you, do you really believe that Jesus bore the penalty of your sin? If you do, then it will drive you to pray like Jesus is telling us to pray. And praying like that does something amazing in your life. What does it do? John Piper. We can leave the past with God. Anybody got a past you're trying to leave? We can say, I trust you, Jesus, that all my sins, all the ones that are public and all the ones that are private, all of them have been lifted, born, suffered for, and therefore removed from me. But then listen to this. You do not have to carry your sins or be burdened by them. You do not have to wake up with guilt or go to bed with guilt. Why? Why? Because he himself poured your sin in his own body. And every single time that you say, Father, forgive me of my sin again today, you are calling back upon this astounding truth that Jesus, perfect Jesus, makes sin go away. Horatio Spafford put it this way, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not just a part of it, but the whole of it is nailed to the cross. It is nailed to the cross. And then he says this, and I bear it no more. I I bear that sin no more. The monsters of fear and guilt do not run my life anymore because Jesus has borne my sin upon his own body. And so therefore we say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Father, teach us to forgive sins. Can you imagine how strange that might have sounded in their ears that day? And yet the reality, what Jesus said to them, he still says to us, that over and over again, for the glory of God and for the good of our lives, that we would say, oh Lord, please forgive me of my sin. And the blood of Jesus Christ washes us over and over, white as snow.